This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Live Talks at the AM, recorded in front of a live audience at the Australian Museum in Sydney. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Australian Museum. I'm Kim McKay. Uh, very privileged to be the director and CEO here and to welcome you uh, to this really great series of talks we've been having. Uh, this afternoon, of course, we're going to have Daniel Boyd in conversation with Stephen Gilchrist, and it's going to be terrific. So thank you for making the time to join us. I'd like to, of course, start by acknowledging country. We are meeting today on the land of the Gadigal and to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging. And, of course, uh, we're also joined today by the Director of First Nations here at the museum, Laura McBride, who curated the Unsettled exhibition. And if you haven't been downstairs to see it as yet, I commend it to you. Uh, it's getting great response from the public and really evoking a lot of uh, interesting comments and emotions. I had a friend come in yesterday. Uh, she brought her children through and she said that they were intrigued to listen to all the other people looking at the exhibition and hear their comments about it. So we're very proud to present this really significant exhibition at the Australian Museum at this particular time in history. Um, now, this is the penultimate talk in our lunchtime conversation series. The provocation for the series came from our 200 Treasures exhibition in the Westpac Long Gallery. And in that exhibition, which was created for our 190th anniversary in 2017, uh, we explore the people who've helped shape modern Australia, as well as the objects in our collection that have contributed to that as well. This year, to align with the Unsettled exhibition, we're exclusively celebrating the contributions of First Nations trailblazers who are featured in that exhibition. And over the past four weeks, we've been witness to engaging conversations about the powerful legacy of individuals like Dr. Evelyn Scott, Eddie Marbo, Anujaru Nanakal, among others. Today, we're going to learn more about the work of the extraordinary visual artist, Emily Kamungware. Now, Ungware has been described as a woman small in stature, but huge in personality. Her contemporary art style drew on ancient traditions. She was a central desert woman who painted what she saw, images of landscape inspired by ceremony that sang with the idea of country and place and also conveyed an important sense of spirituality. While she had been producing batik works for almost a de decade, her acrylic on canvas career was relatively brief and one she did not arrive at until the last decade of her life. It was through this medium that she entered the international spotlight when her striped paintings, as they were referred to, were featured in the 1997 Venice Biennale. Now, today, joining us to talk about the influence and impact of Emily uh, Kamungware's work is celebrated award-winning visual artist Daniel Boyd. Thank you so much, Daniel, for being here. Daniel is of the Gujarat and Gungaloo people of Queensland. He is an artist who has used his humour to corrupt the iconography of colonial figures. Like Ungwanare's 
Boyd's work has also appeared in galleries and festivals across the world, including for All the World's Futures in both the Giardini Central Pavilion and the Arsenali sections of the Venice, Venice Biennale. Today, he'll be in conversation with Dr. Stephen Gilchrist. Thank you, Stephen. Uh, Stephen is of the Yamachi people of Northwest Australia. He is a lecturer in Indigenous art at the University of Sydney. He has curated countless exhibitions in Australia and the US and has written extensively on First Nations art in Australia. From 2012 to 2016, Stephen was the Australian Studies Visiting Curator at the Harvard Art Museums at Harvard University. Now, I want to make my apologies to all of you today and to our wonderful speakers today, as I can't stay to hear this talk or this conversation because today is uh, the Australian Museum's board meeting. I know where I would rather be this afternoon, staying here, but um, I have to go to the Finance and Risk Committee first, which is really doing my head in, as you can imagine. So I'm going to leave you in the very capable hands of our wonderful team today who will look after you and make sure uh, you enjoy this afternoon. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Daniel Boyd and Stephen Gilchrist. <laughs> Thank you very much, uh, Lee, for that introduction. Um, I'd like to also begin by acknowledging the Gadigal people, the people of the grass tree on whose customary lands we are now gathered. This place was named by the Gadigal for the Gadigal because of the Gadigal, and I pay respects um, to the ancestors. And thinking about the past, present, and future, and thinking about the deep memory of place, and how the Gadigal have been keepers and couriers of this deep knowledge. So Daniel and I are going to have a conversation. Just think you're at a dinner party, you're just eavesdropping on us. Um, and yeah, we're going to be talking about the practice of Emily Kama and Wari, but also Daniel's practice. And this moment in time in 2015, where their works intersected at the Venice Biennale, um, curated by the celebrated Nigerian curator um, Okwe and Weasel in 2015. Um, but I thought we might talk about that little exhibition later. But Daniel, did you want to say anything before we begin? No? Great. Well, um, I've been invited to talk a little bit about the work of Emily Kamawara. As you have heard, she was um, one of the most important artists um, come from Australia. And I think it's really important that we spend a little bit of time looking at how her practice emerged into the public sphere, because it was really a re-presentation, a translation of cultural practices in these new mediums. So this is a work, it's in the collection of the National Gallery of Victoria, <coughs> excuse me, um, and it's from 1980. And so in 1977, a group of um, Amadjura and Alwaga women in um, the Utopia region, the Sandover region um, in the central Australia, um, began these adult art and craft and literacy classes. Um, and this really created an explosion of creative energy in the community. People were really excited about the representation and the translation of existing iconography um, and translating it into this new form. And so has anyone used batik before? It's a quite, uh, yes, it's hard work. It's um, um, an unforgiving medium. Um, you're using the kind of hot wax and you're using, I think I have an image. 
of the giantine, the kind of that you pour the um, the wax on, and so it's a resist dye technique, wax resist process, and developed um, in Indonesia and then has been used in Australia, particularly by women. So Ernabella was the first community, um, the longest art producing community in Australia. Um, I mean, community art centre in Australia. Um, and they started Batik in 1971. And so in 1977, um, Madura women were really interested in exploring this new iconography. Um, and so I think, you know, there are some, I think there are kind of a few reasons why this part of her practice has often been marginalised or dismissed. You know, predominantly it was women's practice and it also intersects with very old-fashioned understandings of um, definitions of craft as well. And so I think, you know, part of her... The beauty of her work is that it, it didn't matter which medium she was working in. There were all of, always these magisterial kind of invocations and evocations of place. Um, and, you know, so we have to think about these batiks as an extension of not only her art practice, but her cultural practice as well. So it's not divorced from it, even though, you know, we have to understand that it's something different. So you can see her exploring this kind of early iconography. One of the things you can see is the kind of emu tracks in this work. Um, and then, you know, she was really interested um, in moving into works on canvas and paper. Um, and, you know, with the batiks, there are multiple dye baths. It's quite a long, protracted process. Um, and it's said that she was really interested in the immediacy and um, the kind of... Um, yeah, the quick-drying uh, acrylic paints that she wanted to use in, 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 um, on canvases. Um, so she pivoted to this new medium. As Kim said, she really received a new level of attention. Um, and, you know, perhaps this is the kind of the biases of the art world, that there was um, a recognisable kind of valorisation of painting on canvas rather than painting... Or rather than works on batik. Um, but we have to see them as being of equal value um, and they were equally about place. They're equally about her place in the world and her relationship um, to it. Um, so this is a work in the, also in the National Gallery of Victoria. It's called Big Yam Dreaming. Um, I don't know if you can see, but it, it's actually a four-panelled work. Um, and, you know, I've spent a lot of time with this work intellectually and physically. Um, and, you know, I remember encountering some children who saw this work and they said, oh, this is like, this is noodles on canvas. Um, and it is a food substance. It's, represented, it's representing um, the yam dreaming. So um, the pencil yam that grows in Alokara country, um, as that ripens, um, it for forms these cracks in the surface of the earth, which then um, is, is a kind of um, botanical but also ancestral signification um, to kind of harvest these bush foods. Um, and um, so what you're looking at is really... Oh, so I should also say that this yam food is also associated with growth and fertility, and these designs are painted onto women's bodies in ceremonial production. So, you know, what you're looking at is the designs painted onto body. Um, it's also, you know, looking at the earth, the kind of network of kind of these tubers that grow under the surface of the earth. 
And so you're looking through the earth and on top of the earth. And I think that perspective is really helpful in thinking about we have to have a multi-perspectival outlook when we're thinking about um, Indigenous art. Um, so here's an image of Emily. Um, and so, you know, thinking fast forward from 1977 and then to, um, sorry, 1977 to um, 1997, this is a period of two years where she's um, not suddenly, you know, no one is an overnight success, um, but she's represented at the Venice Biennale. And this is a really important um, Biennale. Um, it was the first and only Biennale curated by two Indigenous women, Brenda L. Croft and Hetty Perkins. Um, and they were really interested in the stripe, this um, idea of the stripe as being this gesture of passage between and beyond certain worlds. So the sensorial worlds of Madura people, um, but also how it intersects and connects with global discussions about um, Indigenous art and inter international art. So I think that's something that I really wanted to talk to um, Daniel about. Um, because this is the work that um, he was also in this uh, 2015 um, exhibition at the Venice Biennale, curated by Okwe and Weasel. This is Earth's Creation by Emily Kamenwari. I, th I think um, maybe in 2007 it was sold at auction and it was the first work by an Indigenous artist to reach this price of $1 million. So this was an important kind of work in the economy of Aboriginal art, but I don't think we should over-determine that as its kind of value. There are multiple registers of value within the work. Um, but it's probably a work that you may have seen in the media represented because of that. But I'm much more interested in Daniel's relationship with um, this work because um, you and Emily were, so this is in, maybe you could talk about these two. Yeah. Uh, so this, this um, the, all of the paintings that I made for the, the All the World's Futures referenced a navigation chart from the Marshall Islands. And uh, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, who, uh, the author, he, um, during his uh, travels, uh, he was uh, given this map as a gift and uh, previously I'd been kind of thinking about how how kind of objects translate between contexts and um, and so uh, museums um, uh, private collections uh, in this instance so you have the navigation chart, which is used, um, uh, you know, in, in uh, you know, they memorize the charts and they use them as a tool to navigate uh, the islands in, in the Marshall Islands. And then it goes into his collection. Mm -hmm. And so he's obviously inspired by these beautiful objects. Um, I, I was first, um, I, I ca first came across one of them in the British Museum. Yep. So um, this, this kind of, um, trajectory of this object was important to me. You know, it was in his. Uh, it was in. It, it was in a, a as a functional tool in yep. the Marshall Islands, and then it goes into uh, a author's uh, archive uh, a collection, and then when he passes, it's auctioned, and then it ends up at Penn State University Museum. 
So um, what, I, what I was trying to um, show to people was that things exist in different contexts and they're viewed differently depending on that, on that context or that place. So connection to um, uh, the landscape uh, in the Marshall Islands or the, or the, the, the ocean is um, different to how someone will, uh, uh, an anthropologist kind of uh, looking at it um, in their collection in Penn State University Museum. Um, that, that, you know, that's just, so, so sorry, what I'm trying to say is uh, I'm interested in how objects, they kind of um, amalgamate um, or uh, gain association like, they're never really, a, they're, not, they're not a static thing, you know, they, they might be in a museum mm -hmm. and, um, uh, you know, how someone engages with it is varied and it's just about how um, these objects accumulate associations through time and space. Yes. So I was trying to like track how it came from the Marshall Islands and how it ended up in a museum, mm. but also um, it's kind of... Um, uh, uh, the I think Oakley's uh, he's the idea behind the the overall show was to kind of uh, introduce um, art from the peripheries into mm -hmm. like a global um, uh, conversation about people's relationship to um, place yep. and to to art as a language. So he's um, you know um, my my work. Um, uh, was kind of looking at it through how someone, someone, how someone is kind of um, influenced by literature, mm. literature. How how they 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 might not know it, but they they take um, a something that they've learnt and then they project it onto the landscape, so they understand like Treasure Island novel. Yeah, and then um, if someone. Uh, insights uh, uh, a, an, an image of a tropical island um, in the Pacific um, those uh, those associations that you have with this this, this story or this narrative it, it is then uh, imparted on how you understand this particular landscape so when um, uh, w what he was trying to do was to to open up all of these conversations about different relationships to a particular place. Mm -hmm. And she had, uh, Emily, Emily had a, um, oh, sorry. So within the, the Giardini, uh, where her work was shown, um, I was kind of on one side of the, the Giardini and she was on the opposite side. Mm -hmm. So we kind of flanked the, the central pavilion in, 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 in the Giardini. And um, Do you want to just tell people what the central pavilion in the Giardini is? Oh, yes. Yeah. So, so um, uh, in Venice, the central pavilion is in the gardens section of the Venice Biennale. And... Uh, Scattered in the in the gardens are the national pavilions um, from around the world, and um, and the the main exhibition is kind of in two parts. So you have the central pavilion, and then you have the arsenale, where um, it where the curated uh, the main curated exhibition is. 
And so um, uh, my work was both in the Central Pavilion and the Giardini. So Oakley was using my work to, to present that these things were operating differently in different contexts. And um, I think um, uh, when, when you were talking about um, the, uh, the yam and the surface of the earth, um, I spoke to Oakley. Uh, so Oakley came out here um, maybe a year and a half prior to his show. And we spoke about uh, different um, philosophers, uh, but there was one in particular that um, uh, that drove a lot of his kind of um, the ideas behind his his kind of mm -hmm. presentation at the at the at the Venice Biennale, and his his name is Edouard Glissant, and he's he was uh, from Martinique, and um, uh, we spoke about. Um, uh, one of his ideas, which is uh, tremblement, so it kind of it's, it's kind of like uh, uh, he 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 called it like a trembling thinking. So like how how thought is also isn't a static thing. You know, it's like a continuous thing that's always um, moving and shifting. And um, I think that's uh, important <laughs> when when we understand our relationship to the rest of the globe. Yeah. You know, it's like we, we're, we're at a point in history where we're becoming too homogenous mm -hmm. in our understanding or relationship to place. And we're losing all of these local uh, rituals that mm -hmm. we have in, in a particular place. Yep. So, Well, even, you know, I've always been a bit sceptical about the title of this work, Earth Creation, as if it would pretend to talk about the whole earth rather than specific parts of the earth, that very specific relationship to place. So maybe that it does anticipate this loss of specificity that we're seeing in this contemporary dis globalised discussion. Like maybe we don't, we have to care less about the globe and more about the earth, you know, specific places within the earth that we have a relationship to. Well, there, there's beauty in difference. Mm. So it's about challenging, like, homogenization of, like, cultures and, like, people relating to a particular place. And that's what, um, that's what Oakley was doing in his show. He was, like, taking a different um, uh, spiritual connection to a place and, like, she was uh, presenting something like, like uh, Earth creation. Mm. But you think about different spiritual... <laughs> spiritual um, uh, uh, representations or, or kind of like uh, connections to history yep. and they all have their own way of speaking about things like this it's just it's just about uh acknowledging all of those things yeah and so i think we have to you know there's these double hinge meaning that it's not just about place but a relationship to place as well and how people um, make meaning through place and i was just wondering about yeah, what that opportunity of being in the Venice Biennale, how that maybe changes the critical reception of, you know, Indigenous art internationally. You know, perhaps it's a very, it can be a very binary conversation in Australia, like Australia versus Indigenous art, or maybe that's too gladiatorial. Um, but, you know, once it's part of an international dialogue, does it change? Yeah, I mean, it does. It, it's... Um, uh, when people from outside of Australia look at Australia... 
um, they don't have those entanglements with colonization. Mm. So they don't have like these uh, associations to history. There's no, there's no bias when they look at yep. uh, a, any particular person's uh, representation of their... Um, and do you find that liberating? Do you find that difficult because you have to explain more or...? No, it's very liberating, yeah. Uh, and, um, but it's also, uh, you know, being a part of this particular show, um, there were many people from the peripheries that were experiencing the same kind of reception to their visual language. Yep. And so there was, uh, you know, there was a confidence that was gained from being associated with other people yep. that were speaking about their relationship to lo locality. Yeah, and I, I think there's two things going on. Maybe that there's power in the peripheries um, and also that you can deprioritize the centre at the same time. Um, but also maybe shift, you know, that binary of the periphery and margins as well. I mean the periphery and the center as well you know maybe they are much more interconnected than we give them credit for yeah I mean the I mean this this the center you know we, we obviously we we shouldn't forget about yeah. the, the the center Don't um, be it's about amal amalgamating um, like an amalgamation of different mm. experiences relating to the visual like to 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 the arts or to um, create the creative process. Um, you know, one of the things just visually you can probably have noticed with both of these works or um, your works, um, that both use the dot, you know, which is probably, you know, uh, an icon, an icon of Australian Aboriginal art or Aboriginal art from Australia. Um, but, you know, how did people engage? Did they engage with that on an individual basis with the dotting in your work? Or how would how did you frame yeah. the dotting? Well, actually, I'll just go back. I, I I went off track when I was talking about trembling thinking. So Edouard Glissant he uses the he used the surface of the ocean to represent, um, uh, and 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 the islands of the archipelago in in the Caribbean, to represent um, a a way of relating to to the other. Mm. So uh, the the shoreline of these islands are about this. Um, uh, it's, it's constantly in motion. There's no. It's not static. So they speak a lot about their relationship to nature through philosophy, and um, the surface of the ocean is like a, a threshold between um, uh, the known and the unknown. Mm -hmm. So he. He um, so he uses the archipelagos to speak about this this thought, like you know, you can't when you come to someone, it's you have you you have a conversation with someone on an equal level. Then you're not projecting onto that person what, how you what you think they are. So you start at that point, and it creates a bit better relationship. There's no bias or mm. or um, hierarchy in your relationship to the other person. Or, or um, so there's like, uh, um, the surface of my works, they are, they're made up of uh, clear, uh, like they're tr transparent um, uh, dots and they're, they're convex, they sit on the surface of the, of the, the canvas. And they, they represent lenses 
So mm -hmm. that it's about perception. Yep. It's about how we see our relationship to something. And then it becomes about like plurality and multiplicity, you know, different entry points into something and exit points. So it's um, uh, when, you, when you talk about uh, the yam, yam dreaming, it's a similar kind of thing. It's like mm. this, this threshold between, um, uh, well, for me, I kind of use the entrance to a cave yep. to, to speak about that threshold. And um, so it's kind of, um, it began with light for me and how, how light activates the surface of the work. Mm. Um, and I was trying to create something that was uh, something that um, wasn't static, it wasn't still. And when the person, when when the viewer engages the work, they they activate the surface. You know, they have they have a, a connection mm. with that work. That's about how they move in front of it. So, um, yeah, that that threshold is kind of like the me like the you know, it, and 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 the, and the kind of beauty about the um uh, you know an idea not being static is it's that thing where it continues to accumulate associations and and understanding and reassessment and um nothing is ever fixed mm -hmm. and um so that's what 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 that i, I kind of yeah um. No, that I think, um, yeah, pushing against those complacent categories, and you know, we're hearing, you know, the theory. Does this often does this happen in practice? Are people able to kind of expand themselves, think differently, recalibrate definitional regimes? Are they? Is this happening? Oh yeah, yeah, it happens very slowly <laughs> because people. Adhere to the status quo. Yep. They're afraid of difference, mm. and I think to be progressive, we need to push difference. Mm. Mm -hmm. you know, it's not, uh, um, uh, yeah, it, it's. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's slowing, slowing us down. Yep. Yeah, and that that comes into that idea of globalization or globality, and um, and and questioning that the homogenizing forces of globalization. I might skip ahead to this um, series of work, which I think we're seeing at the moment of kind of a, a rewelding of the world of the museum, you know, maybe at a glacial pace, maybe slowly. Um, but, you know, we're, we're here at the Australian Museum with this exciting new exhibition, Unsettled, about unsettling people's perceptions, like you were saying. Um, but maybe we could um, talk a little bit about these works um, and how, what kind of... I mean, intervention really is a word that kind of endorses the centre kind of periphery model again. But, um, you know, it's much more than a, a kind of a subversion. It's much more than an inversion. It's something else is happening with these works. And um, for those of you who don't know, this is King George III, whose um, name, this place, was taken. Um, and, yeah, maybe we can begin with talking about, um, yeah, this work. I mean, in maybe... You were 19 when you moved to Canberra. Yeah. Um, so you studied at the uh, the School of Art at ANU, um, and you know we've both lived in Canberra. It's a very, um, you know, truncated representation of Australianness. It's very inorganic. And um, is this where you kind of were interested in kind of iconography of Australianness or 
representations of narrating a particular version of Australia? Yeah. Can I just go back a, a little bit? So when we're talking about the, 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 the process, the kind of materiality of the, of the work, um, uh, and uh, each, each lens is kind of like a representation of that, um, uh, one's, right, one's right to, uh, Glissant calls it opacity. Mm. So one's right to opacity means that you can't, like you're not, you don't allow yourself to be projected onto. Mm. And that's that thing about the, the equality through that um, perception. Yep. And uh, um, so what, I, what, 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 what drove a lot of my interest in these, these icons was trying to shift how people were projecting onto the landscape. So when Captain Cook came to, well, when, when, when James Cook, Lieutenant James Cook came to uh, uh, Australia, he was projecting an understanding of what they believed that place, that landscape should be. Can we go to this work and talk about? Yeah. So, um, so you know, this this kind of idea of projecting onto the landscape and the people, it was it was the the first kind of like fault in the you know in their relationship with the kind of imperial expansion, the British. So it was in their relationship to the people here in the landscape. So if you have a, a narrative and it is one that negates other people's experience, then it's a false narrative. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't, uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like a... Um, and then when, when it's uh, continually perpetuated through... Um, uh, how do I say it? Um, general, generalized ideas of um, nation building. Mm -hmm. It kind of gets lost in this mythology, and um, trying to shift those mythologies back to something that includes, like a, an amalgamated version of history. Mm -hmm. Then uh, it will be difficult for people to kind of move forward and. Um, and, and have a true uh, understanding of a particular place. And this is referencing um, the E. Phillips Fox painting, which is also a kind of a mythology as well. It wasn't painted at that moment. It was a you know looking back um, on the eve of um, Australia's federation. So thinking very specifically about nation building um, and what kind of images become our memory objects. Yeah. So they. I mean, uh, and and. Um uh, you know, if you have multi-generational multi experience with a particular icon or image, um, things become truth. Yeah, which generations of people visiting the National Gallery of Victoria would have seen that E. Phillips Fox painting. Um, you know, it enters, it seeps into people's consciousness about yeah. the particular ways in which a place was um, claimed, um, you know, illegally through you know, piracy. Um, um, yeah, I, I think it's one of the really interesting kind of interventions into the work is that you have taken out Aboriginal people in the painting and replaced them. Yeah, I mean, it was, um, uh, it was a comment on the, the, you know, how we were classed as um, 
flora and fauna before 67. So um, uh, also it was about that projection. So mm. um, uh, there were these grass trees were commonly known as black boy trees. And it's because of the, 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 the central stem looking like a, a spear. Mm. So it's about um, projecting something onto the natural world. Mm. It's like it's a black boy behind a tree. And um, uh, so that's kind of where that came, that, the, you know, that intervention was kind of because of that. Um, and you know, so you started this body of work. When did you start thinking about those iconographic works? Well, I was, in, I was at art school in Canberra yep. and um, they just purchased the uh, John Weber portrait of Cook. Um, and, and I was interested. I, oh. This isn't, this is Banks. This is, this well, is Joseph Banks. We've uh, got our lovely Banks here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so, um, so I, I was just kind of interested in how we collectively relate to it. Because yep. I didn't, um, I, I had a different understanding of, of this image, um, you know, and I, and I was interested in the kind of the, the how how these images create um, a situation where mm. they've they've gathered all of these relationships, yep. and they become icons. Yeah, and so um, I was interested in the, the 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 power of the language of portrait mm. portraiture mm. in in the. Uh, 18th and 19th century in England. Mm. So I was like, I was totally into English portraiture painting. Yep. And, you know, I was kind of looking at the language and understanding how um, uh, these icons were um, proliferated through mm. culture. And I think, you know, we have to understand that colonisation is not just this temporalised moment of, you know, invasion. It continues and it enters into our national institutions and to our consciousness. Um, I mean, is, we can, like, the, the door frame is a, you know, it's a, a reference to the Enlightenment, how museums came to be. We've got columns yeah. in here that reference, like... Well, I think, yeah. Like a, you know, Greek um, architecture. And yeah. So, like... The structures that we exist in, uh, the language of imperialism and power, it's very present. Mm. And so it's about um, kind of adding to that because we don't want to forget about no. um, that part of how we got to this point. It's about um, making people aware of um, what that, um, what the, the doorframe is doing. Mm. You know, and we're when not... Yeah, we have to insist that we're not all children of the Enlightenment. You know, we don't all kind of share the same values. And which is why I particularly love this work where you have kind of inserted your face into this specimen jar. You know, how do we survive empire? How do we not become a victim of empire? Yeah, I mean, it's, um, it's just what we do. We share our experience. Mm. You know, we, it's like... Uh, um, We've been sharing our, our, our stories for 
or thousands of years, you know. Yeah. There are these really amazing, deep connections to, to land and, and the people in the landscape. So. Yeah. And the museum is a, a kind of very charged place, you know, ancestrally and colonially. Um, and how, you know, what is the productive value for you of working in museums? You know, I what mean, do you want to achieve? What do you get out of it? What do you... I mean, it's... Oh, there, were, there, there are many ways that I engage with the museum. Um, uh, but it's, I think it's the, um, the remnants of kind of, you know, the Enlightenment and the museum uh, structure that, um, that need to... Mm. Uh, um, that need to uh, evolve and include as many voices as possible and, and different ways of engaging with their collection. And um, it's important that people have the opportunity to have shows like the one that's on at the moment. You know, it's like we, um, it's about sharing our experience so that hopefully other people will understand how we exist in the society. Well, I think we're probably nearly out of time, but I, I Oh, five more minutes. Okay, um, we can we can still talk about that because um yeah I do um yeah think that this when I first saw this image I was thinking about you know the politics of repatriation specifically you know human remains but the debate is also you know around um, you know the return of cultural artifacts as well um, and yeah I I, um, I was really interested in your kind of residencies that you've done in museums particularly. Um, yeah, in the UK, um, and yeah, some of the works that you've done there. Yeah, I mean, I was I was very privileged to, to be able to kind of um, uh, engage a collection at the Natural History Museum. It's uh, uh, it was at times very challenging mm. because I I did I did deal I, I worked directly with the Human Remains Unit mm. at the uh, museum, so I had um, I had seen human remains that had possible connection to a country. Mm, mm. So it was, you know, it wasn't uh, about creating you know, pretty pictures for the, for the public because in, in, it, it, it was to work towards a, a show at the museum in, in a gallery there. And so they were, they were taking their human remains collection and putting them into these new conservation grade boxes that were like, you know, archivally safe, you know. And they had, uh, or there were origami kind of folding boxes and one end of the box would like fold down like this. So, um, and it had a tray that sat in, in, the, in the box. Mm. So you could slide the tray out to look at the, the skull. But this gesture to me was very important. It kind of meant that you weren't touching the skull, you know. It's a it's an archival thing as well as being respectful to the fact that they were a human being, not just an object. And it was challenging. These works are challenging the fact that like Aboriginal people weren't objects; they were humans. Mm. And um, that's that's kind of what I was talking about by inserting myself into these images because he had he had uh, all of these things that he collected during mm. his grand tour. You know, Joseph Banks um, was actually very powerful 
and he was he was much more important to the British Empire than just than, than uh, Cook, and he 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 did things like um, uh, open up his knowledge of the the natural world helped mm. to break monopoly on different markets. Yep. So it was about his knowledge to break economic um, control of different markets in the world. So he had like the tea industry. Um, he took, uh, he organized the, the bounty to transplant the breadfruit to, to Jamaica to feed the slaves there because it was such a huge part of the British economy. The taxes mm. were huge. Mm. You know, they had, uh, they, had to, they had to, it was about product, productivity. You know, they were taking, they didn't have a staple food in Jamaica. So, um, yeah, I don't know where that was going. It was just kind of like (laughs) all these uh, connections through the Enlightenment, Joseph Banks, the Royal Society, Mm. the British Museum, then becoming the Natural History Museum. He's a key figure in in their collection. Mm. And a lot of the things like the Banks here, um, his Florilegium, they're they're very important, like, um, documents. And, um, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it was, it was nice to be able to touch those things. Mm, Yeah. And I think we're definitely still living with the legacy of those taxonomies within museum collections, within art histories. Um, And, yeah, so I thought I'd put these um, works up, but just as a kind of a a trigger to maybe, um, yeah, think about some questions that people might have for um, Daniel, but thank you so much for sharing so much with us and you know, making all the works come alive for us. So thank you. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.